Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Dissidents and Dictators, a podcast by the Human Rights Foundation. I'm Alicia Maldonado, one of your hosts, here along with the ever-delightful Casey Michelle, my co-host. Say hello. Hi. And our faithful producer, Omar Afotihi. On this week's episode, we'll be talking about Evan Gershkovich, the Wall Street Journal reporter in prison in Moscow, New York Mayor Eric Adams' entanglement with Turkey, and Louis Vuitton's latest fashion show in Hong Kong, so stay tuned. Hey, Casey. Hey, Alicia. How you doing today? How's it going? I'm good. You know, I got to tell you. Yeah, what you got? I feel nice because I feel like I got plenty of space to not only share my opinions, but also stretch my arms and legs. Why would that be? Because we have a beautiful new office. Oh, my goodness. That's right. Here in New York City, we have a beautiful uh, office on the very high floor now, 65th floor. I know. What I what I love about this this floor is not only the view, but all the sounds. Well, you're you lots of that. Of this beautiful city, which never sleeps. It's one of the beautiful things about the city. It gives its its character and charm. That's exactly right. There's always ambiance. There's always something going on. And there's always something to enjoy. Here's a question for you, though. Um, do you think that, you know, now that we're in a new office, but not only are we in a new office, you and I are in our own office. That's exactly right. How much work do you think we're going to get done? I would imagine not much. Not much is exactly what I was and thinking now, as I guess well. <laughs> more importantly, though, and maybe we could talk about this later in the conversation, Alicia, as we get through some of the topics that you laid out at the intro, when are we going to get the Harry Styles posters plastered all around this office? I am waiting. I am ready and willing. I will actually bring in, because you have on the, you know, on, on our windowsill, you know, your Batman <laughs> and your Ulysses S. Grant. That's right. I have a Harry Styles doll that sings to you. That's what makes you beautiful. And honestly... I would, I would venture to say those are three of the most iconic figures. Iconic. Not just of the past century, probably of all time. Probably ever, yeah. Batman, Grant, and Harry Styles. Let's, I think Harry Styles needs to come in and join the team. And look, it is funny because it's one of these things, and we have this new office, beautiful views, yes. beautiful skyscapes, all this stuff. And it, you know, it's one of these kind of things that you just kind of take for granted day in, day out, that you can come to this office, you can look around and enjoy all of this, as well as enjoy the camaraderie of all of our wonderful coworkers here, here at the Human Rights Foundation. But you know, you talked about at the beginning of this podcast, one of the stories we're going to be discussing today, and that mm. is the, I was going to say recent, it's not recent anymore detention yes. of the Wall Street Journal reporter, Evan Gershkovich, in Russia. It's now been 250 days of him days not being able to enjoy even just these basic perfunctory things, coming to the office, seeing your coworkers, who nonetheless still stand with and support him. Mm-hmm. I can't believe it's been this long already. Well, you know, uh, Russia always has a good way of uh, extending and extending the detention. And so he hasn't even had a trial yet, if, if memory serves. And so um, they keep elongating that. I think it's going to be till January now that um, it's allegedly supposed to get any attention. But, you know, he's he's been jailed for uh, charges of espionage, which, of course, you know, he denies and the journal denies and even the U.S. government denies. And uh, Russia says it's just following its own laws. Yeah, absolutely. Can you talk us through that? Oh, no, of course. I mean, and, and look, I think for a little more context for, for folks, you know, Evan, yeah. he's been working in the Wall Street Journal for some time. I've certainly been reading him for years. He is really second to none as it pertains to kind of on-the-ground reporters in and around Russia to help us understand what exactly is taking place in that country in this broader Russian crisis that we have seen over the past few years, frankly, few decades at, uh, at, at this point. He was a, a very well-known writer and analyst 
in the broader kind of Russia watching community before. Um, I certainly think that's one of the reasons that he was arrested by Russian authorities uh, earlier this year, because again, he's not a no name, um, uh, unknown quantity over there. He is absolutely. I mean, didn't the Russians give him permission who, to be there? Well, that's exactly right. And look, I don't know Evan personally. Um, you know, again, I've been reading his work for 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 years, but in knowing those who know him, they have all said the same thing. He was there because he loves the country. Mm-hmm. He does. He believes in the future of Russia. He does love the broader Russian people, as it were, and he understands full well what that country, certainly what that regime, mm-hmm. is doing both domestically and internationally as well. He had a job to do, which is why he was there, and which is why he was arrested uh, earlier this year on these completely fabricated, completely trumped up espionage charges, uh, which I think, you know, again, one further point of context, even amidst all of the arrests, all of the crackdowns, all of the pressure on journalists, both Russian, American, you know, uh, and other in Russia, this is the first time since the Cold War that authorities in Moscow have slapped an espionage charge on a, a, a foreign journalist. The first time we've seen this in decades. And I, I cannot begin to describe the chilling effect this has had on foreign journalists who are suddenly realizing truly what's at stake for their work. What do you think, you know, pushed them to why now? Well, I mean, that's it's hard to kind of... Sure. I mean, it's certainly multi-causal with plenty of variables at, at play, not only because of the honest, truthful reporting that he was pursuing right. there, um, identifying those who were willing to speak with him and speak out against the regime in and of itself, to say nothing of the broader clampdowns and crackdowns and move toward frankly, outright totalitarianism in Russia itself. Again, kind of return to the Stalinist days, those bad old days. But part of it is also this kind of burgeoning, almost industry of effective hostage taking Mm -hmm. in Russia itself. And then using those figures, all too often Americans, as um, uh, uh, things they can swap for other Russian, Russian prisoners elsewhere. And again, we're not talking about honest to God, Russian journalists that are jailed, but arms traffickers and those that are involved in foreign interference efforts and those that are linked to Russia's spy networks. I mean, this, so this is what's been happening over the past few years right. is Russia will arrest a, you know, a, a, a foreign national, a, a journalist, um, maybe most spectacularly a, a WNBA player, Brittany Griner, right. uh, again, these, these totally fabricated trumped up charges and then use those figures as bargaining chips to return, again, arms traffickers or narco traffickers or whoever they see elsewhere as acting on, uh, on behalf of the Russian state. And unfortunately, this seems to be exactly what happened with Evan right here. Well, they're very good at it. You know, we talk about this a lot at the foundation. The journal ran this piece marking the 250 days as well. But it's a, you know, while they focus, of course, on the trial and and the detainment and all those things that have yet to come that are important, they, they had this piece talking about how his friends are still, you know, he's still bringing his friends together while he's been imprisoned and that they've become even closer than ever. Connecting from, you know, Berlin to, you know, New York to, you know, Moscow and banding together and and writing letters to him. And of course, you know, in the piece, they talk about how you have to have them written in Russian. So they're spending hours and hours to translate them and so that he can get them, but also that he's created this even bigger network of friends who's not, maybe not met before. Anyway, all this, because I think it's not only a beautiful piece and a beautiful testament to someone who seems like a, a, not only a good journalist, but a good person, um, is that, you know, Felix Maradiaga from Nicaragua, who's a political prisoner for a year, who just talked about this at our forum, talked about how important it is that when you're a political prisoner to not be forgotten. Yeah. And so it's really heartening to see that his family and friends are rallying around him, as well as his colleagues, because it really is important to to, to keep his name 
in print when he's not, you know, the one writing it and, and being there for him because that's what um, the dictators and authoritarians of the world cannot stand. Well, exactly. And it's not just his friends and family that know him personally, but certainly the journalistic community in the States has rallied behind him. And I think a lot of folks that are just kind of generally following the news realize how reprehensible this single arrest is and are posting, you know, hashtag I stand with Evan, sharing his articles, sharing letters of support, so on and so forth. It has been remarkable to see how many folks are rallying around him. I do want to mention he is hardly the only American journalist right. targeted by the Russian regime. Just a few weeks ago, there was another a dual national, uh, American-Russian dual national, a woman named Alsu uh, 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 Komarshova, who works at uh, Radio Free Europe, who was in Russia, uh, not even working there. She was just visiting uh, family, as I recall, uh, picked up and detained Again, on similar charges, we have no idea when she's going to get out. We have no idea when she's going to be able to get back and see her her husband or, or, or her young daughters. Um, and our thoughts go out to her just so we know, uh, or just so listeners are aware that Evan is not the only one that this right. has happened to and is worth standing with. Yeah, it gives me goosebumps hearing these sort of stories, how quickly, how quick and easy it is to just sort of have your life stripped away from you for nothing. Well, exactly. And how quickly it is to have your life turned upside down when you have these kind of foreign entanglements. Uh, you're just trying to do your job. Now, I should say, uh, Evan, again, as far as anyone who knows him, um, a wonderful writer, wonderful investigator, uh, and, and as far as anyone could tell, has, has said a wonderful person, um, not a politician. You know, right. He's not there for political considerations whatsoever. Right. You know, there's another gentleman that you mentioned in the intro today, and we'll just use this as a, as a wonderfully smooth segue here, who is a politician. Yes. Bringing things back to our beautiful city of New York, right yes. here uh, on the Atlantic uh, a seaboard, overseen by our wonderful mayor, Mr. Eric Adams, who's gotten in a, a little bit of a pickle recently for some of his own foreign entanglements, uh, which I think you wanted to talk about today. I do. Uh, well, I would like you to break it down. You, you've wrote about, written about it in The New Republic because it's one of those delicious pieces that um, it's hard to unravel. You know, so what is going on, basically? Or, you know, as my former New York Post colleague texted me and asked me, can you explain how the Turkish government, because that's the entanglement here, thought it could exploit a relationship with the Brooklyn Borough president, which is what Adams was before? Before ascending to New York uh, uh, mayor's office. I mean, the short Talk answer, Alicia, is no, <laughs> I can't. And frankly, as far as anyone can tell, no one else knows what the heck is actually going on. But so let's let's pull back a second. Give some bits, so, of, give bits and bobs. Last month, we got the news of an investigation ongoing into uh, those who are close to New York City Mayor Eric Adams about these questionable donations that flowed into his recent election campaign. Um, that were maybe not quite what they seemed. You know, in, in technical parlance, these were so-called straw donors that were effectively, apparently and allegedly, acting as uh, cutouts for or middlemen for donations that were actually coming from elsewhere. Okay. Um, again, for a little bit of context, in the United States of America, it doesn't matter the election, federal, local, whatever it might be, it is illegal for non-American citizens to donate to specific campaigns, to specific individuals, to specific offices themselves. And what we have seen, unfortunately, a recent uptick in is uh, foreign regimes, especially those mm. governmentally connected to authoritarian regimes, identifying individuals that are American citizens 
and then using those individuals mm -hmm. to funnel the money to the candidates that those regimes would like to see in power. We saw this a couple years ago with, most spectacularly, the United Arab Emirates targeting an American national to bankroll uh, presidential campaigns. That ended up going all the way through the courts, and that American was, was found guilty. And that was eventually connected all the way back to the highest ranks of the United Arab Emirates dictatorship. There are still plenty of questions about this Eric Adams. Yeah, why Eric Adams? Fluffle debacle. So this is another element of it. It makes sense why, sorry, it makes a certain sense why regimes would do this at the federal level. Yes. At the American presidential level. But we, an ineffective mayor. Because the American president is the one that directs American foreign policy and American foreign policy decisions. It would even make sense to see this at a congressional level, because Congress does have input on American foreign policy, especially as it pertains to financing foreign policy decisions. But this guy's a mayor in one city? He, he's not federally involved. He's not involved in, in foreign policy crafting. He's not involved. He's, he's not our commander in chief. It's Why so is this happening? And you're exactly right, Alicia. This is so bizarre. All we have right now are theories and ideas. Because this case is ongoing, these investigations are ongoing, we are still waiting for more details to come out. But what it appears is that entities in Turkey or linked to the uh, Turkish regime saw an opportunity with the mayor to not necessarily craft American foreign policy, but whitewash the image in Ankara. Whitewash and launder the reputation of the regime in Turkey. And again, I, I, was, I wish I, I was a fly on the wall for these decisions. Yeah. Because what ended up happening is Eric Adams allegedly receives these so-called straw donations. And simultaneous to that, while working in Brooklyn and again now in the mayor's office, makes all these trips to Turkey. Right. Talks about how wonderful things are over there. Talks about how wonderful uh, the, the government is there. Never criticizes them whatsoever. And oh, by the way, this was also happening with Eric Adams in Azerbaijan and in China, visiting these countries, bankrolled by these Eric, regimes. what is a police officer doing in Turkey? And... Time and again, talking about how wonderful it is, how he's going to retire to Azerbaijan, how he's going to buy a home in Turkey. You know, these kind of wonderfully ludicrous things that I think Eric Adams is well known for, for a lot of other topics, just so happens now to also be laundering the images of some of these dictatorships. In China's case, one that's committing outright genocide right. against its Uyghur population. Has Adams anything to say for himself? He has denied that any crimes were committed. He has said that he has always told his staff who, again, are the ones that are overseeing the donation right. intake, to follow the law. Um, but uh, again, you know, the record does kind of speak for itself. You can go through and watch these old videos. And again, you'll, you'll see these in, in, in the articles that we, we link to the, the notes today. Uh, these old videos of him saying, you know, what a wonderful place Turkey truly is. What a wonderful country overseen by what is effectively such a wonderful mm -hmm. regime that we should go out of our way to continue supporting. You say in your piece, uh, or, you know, you kind of reference the New York Times report that he was allegedly going to press city officials to for a high rise for the Turkish consulate. Yeah. So that was the, the game here. So this is one of the other kind of really tangible elements of it. It's one thing to launder reputation. It's another thing to have the mayor, who has clearly certain powers, even if it's not foreign policy related, to uh, allow uh, the Turkish government... Um, a uh, uh, what ended up becoming, uh, as far as anyone could tell, the single biggest Turkish consulate anywhere in the world. Now, I haven't been there personally. I've seen photos. It does look lovely. I'm but sure if it you're does. talking about the biggest consulate in the world, look, there are going to be certain protocols you have to follow. 
There's fire code. There's safety considerations. There's environmental All considerations. The bureaucracy. It's a lot of paperwork. Yeah. For any building, especially in a city like like New York, uh, and it's good to have a friend like Eric Adams, who, as we have seen from some investigations and reports, uh, apparently leaned on local officials to fast track this, to bypass some of these things, so that Turkish President Recep Erdogan could come and say, "Look how wonderful this is! Look what I have brought to the Turkish people! Look what I have brought to America! How wonderful is all of this!" And um, can we trust any of them, Casey? <laughs> Well, we I just trust, trust. trust is a trust is an interesting way, but it, I, I will say, you know, the New York Times had an article about this, and it said it was quote an unusual intervention that led to Turkey's quote <laughs> increased power. So again, <laughs> hey, it's good to have friends. Good to have friends in high places or in high rises. I, I, I will say, just as a final note on this, this is a, a burgeoning research space of what is called subnational diplomacy. Again, you think national diplomacy, you know, Washington, mm-hmm. Ankara, London, so on and so forth. Subnational diplomacy targeting these local officials, whether at the um, uh, city, municipal, or, or or state levels to whitewash, to launder, and then to proceed to open doors. Hasn't been nearly enough research into this, um, but this is certainly one case study in that. And I think it's just really interesting, you know, as we kind of uh, move on, because it's so murky and because none of it seems to make any sort of sense, it's one of those things that just takes so long to sort out. Maybe people just tire of it and we never can really get to an answer. <laughs> well, certainly, I, mean, I think a lot of folks, look, as someone who works in this space day in, day out, yeah, it's a little tiring. That's, yeah. that's why I drink far too much coffee. <laughs> yeah. Well, shall we move on? Yes, I think so. All right. Well, we've got another piece to talk about. It's our colleague Claudia Bennett's piece in the Washington Times about Louis Vuitton's latest fashion show, uh, the first ever to take place in Hong Kong. It was headed by Pharrell Williams. You know, you know, if you're happy, room without a roof. You know that song. Clap your I, hands. I, I, yes, I love that song. I know. Yeah, me too. I, you might have to sing it for me to jog my memory. Hmm. I would consider it maybe later. That's fine. That's that's right. that's why God invented wine. I, you did. Just, I did just one clap though. Yes. you may have heard that. So uh, anyway, so yeah, Claudia writes uh, the Washington Times that while the high-profile event is positioned or was positioned because that took place last week as a catalyst to restore Hong Kong's image as a global destination for luxury shopping and revive tourism, it only further whitewashes the city of Hong Kong as a haven for luxury goods rather than a fortress of democracy against the Chinese Communist Party's authoritarianism. It's another good piece, you know. Oh, it's a great piece. Claudia's a wonderful writer. We should really have her on the podcast. Let's get her on here. Um, She can talk about some more of these things, but I just think it's interesting. And um, I I think it's important to kind of bang on about these um, star-studded events in the name of, uh, you know, dictatorship. It looks good. And you go, well, what's really wrong with that? And then you go, well, let's just peel back the layers a little bit and let's see what's actually going on. And so she kind of does that in this piece pretty well. I was going to say, we've talked about celebrities and dictators yeah. in previous episodes. You know, Louis Vuitton, the current creative director there, is a gentleman named Pharrell, who's a wonderfully talented musician. But as far as I can tell, it's not said a single word about either Beijing's crackdown on democracy in Hong Kong, let alone any of the other totalitarian measures Beijing has taken in recent years. No, I can't think of anything either. Nor can I think of uh, any of the other, you know, people who had, you know, been bandied about to be detentants. Uh, Rihanna, Tyler, the creator. I don't know. You know... And this, that, that's one subset we talked about. I mean, the, the issue of, the reality of the broader fashion industry in and of itself right. and the overlap and the linkages to authoritarian regimes, 
whether it pertains to 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 again whitewashing or supply chain management mm-hmm. or um, uh, uh, the role again in opening doors for these regimes in and of themselves through the connections that they make. I mean, not only could that be a topic for a podcast in itself, but it could be a topic 100%. for an entire program. Yeah. For instance, at a at a human rights organization. At least, ah, do we have any insight into anything like we that? Do it's called where your values. Where your values. I just think that's so clever. If I do say so for us, it um, absolutely is, and that is how at which human rights organization? Oh, the Human Rights Foundation. That's exactly right. That's us. <laughs> that is us. Um, yeah, I don't think we have to live on that one long, but we'll share it in the show notes. Uh, read it and share it. And, and I hope it's a bit of an education of, you know, there's just so many tendrils from the celebrities well, to I, I, how, you, how you're wearing these garments. I think what's especially heinous about, or unfortunate, or whatever terminology you like, about this show in Hong Kong and again, there's plenty more information if you go to the Human Rights Foundation's website uh, and, and search for the Wear Your Values uh, a campaign, is that this is taking place in a country, again, we talked about Beijing's ongoing genocide of Uyghurs earlier, but the East Turkestan region, the, the Uyghur Autonomous Region, is home for, I don't remember what the percentage is off the top of my head, some significant percentage of the global cotton extraction, so much of which ends up finding its way into the fashion industry itself Mm -hmm. and so much of which is directly tied to genocidal slave labor Mm -hmm. um, that uh, the fashion industry has spent years ignoring. Yeah, that's right, Casey. One in five cotton garments um, are tainted by forced labor, and more than 20% of the world's cotton comes from the Uyghur region. Um, If this is a a thought or a statistic that concerns you, you could always download uh, the Human Rights Foundation's Uyghur Forced Labor Checker, which is a global Chrome extension plugin, and it'll inform you as a consumer whether the apparel brands that you're buying rely on Uyghur forced labor, and it'll give you at the point of purchase decision to say yes or no. And I use that tracker every day on my Google Chrome browser. And I tell you, it works. It It has helped deter me from, again, these are basic things we're talking about. Avoiding buying things that are produced with effective slave labor certainly seems like things that people can rally behind. And you know, we know it works because the CCP went after it, as Bloomberg noted a couple months ago, not back in August. So we know the tracker works. If you're being targeted by Beijing, you're doing something right. I think we're doing something right. Yeah. Well, that was a great episode, Alish. I think so. Thank you for joining me again. Well, thanks for joining me in this brand new office that we'll we just be have. staring at each other a lot and staring at the beautiful view that we have. That's exactly Not right. getting work done. That's in exactly there. right. I'm just going to be staring at my Batman figurines <laughs> and your Harry Styles poster. It's going to yes. feel like home. Everyone's going to be so jealous of this room. That's exactly right. It's going to be a popular spot. It is a popular spot. All right. Shall I see you next week? See everyone next week, next Thursday. The Human Rights Foundation is a nonpartisan, nonprofit organization that promotes and protects human rights globally with a focus on closed societies. We promote freedom where it's most at risk in countries ruled by authoritarian regimes.